0: Hello and welcome to the 10th episode of In Context, a CCSU Journalism Department podcast. I am your producer, Sam Pappas. Today's episode will discuss the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky scandal, the history of bootlegging during the Prohibition, and the history of news coverage during the Apollo 11 mission with an interview from a senior writer at spacenews.com. Please enjoy the podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to our podcast. My name is Maddie Wilson, and I'm here with my partner, Molly Ingram. Today, we will be discussing
2: the impact of the media on the Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky scandal of 1998 and how
1: the coverage of sexual relations scandals have changed since. Coverage of the scandal began on January 21, 1998, but Lewinsky, a 22-year-old White House intern and President Clinton's affair, began in November 1995.
2: Clinton and Lewinsky had an affair that included nine sexual encounters between November 1995 and March 1997. After Lewinsky was transferred from her job at the White House due to reports that she was spending too much time around the president, Lewinsky confided in her relationship with Clinton to her friend Linda Tripp. In September 1997, Tripp began to record their phone calls. Four months later, Tripp gave the tapes to federal investigator Kenneth Starr, who, at the time, was investigating Clinton in the Whitewater case. This began the federal investigation between Lewinsky and Clinton and led to the media craze surrounding the affair.
1: News of the Affair broke on the Drudge Report, an internet gossip column, on January 19th, 1998. The story was picked up by national news sources on January 21st. We spoke to two journalists in separate conversations who reported on the issue at the time. Let's hear from David Lightman.
3: I was the uh, Washington Bureau Chief of the Hartford Courant at the time. Uh, We had, I believe, four reporters at the time, and... um, It was the story. I mean, it was the big story. Now, we tried to skew things uh, to make them meaningful to the readers in Connecticut. Um, We wrote the national story, but we also had to look at some of the key players from Connecticut. And there were several at the time. Um, I believe, I may be wrong about this, that Senator Dodd, Chris Dodd, was Democratic Party chairman. Uh, Joe Lieberman was a senator from Connecticut as well. He would come to play an important role in this. Um, so those were two angles that we had to pursue.
2: We first asked David to tell us about the day he heard about the alleged affair and what his first steps were. Oddly
3: enough, I was there at the White House the day that he said, I did not have sex with that woman, Mrs. Lewinsky. And I remember walking out of there and calling the editor right away. Uh, Cell phones were limited back then and saying, there's something going on here. And that's when it really hit me that now the president himself was bringing it out into the public. It wasn't just a grand jury thing, but this was big. This was huge, and we better get on this. But how?
2: David said that nothing like this had ever been covered by newspapers, and he cited multiple reasons. When I started, and I started in the
3: 70s, um, of course, you heard rumors about you know affairs and that sort of thing, but you didn't report it. The rule was you didn't report it unless it had a direct impact on the public performance. Um, I worked in Annapolis for years uh, covering the legislature and the governor. And we would see things, that, particularly in the evening, and we wouldn't report them. Because, again, unless somebody sh- showed up drunk on the floor of the Senate or something or had an unexplained absence, it just wasn't anybody's business. That all began to change in the 80s. It evolved for various reasons. and So by the 90s, this idea that this could even be reported, let alone with some of the language that that was used, was just almost unthinkable. But it was just an evolution that had taken place through the 80s and 90s.
2: The media was becoming more and more open about discussing topics that had previously been taboo.
3: There was more willingness to be open about uh, things, about sexuality. I mean, the gay rights movement began to you know erupt if you will in the 90s you had a major parade in 1993 in Washington and I believe the Ellen DeGeneres thing was 97 somewhere in there Um, so people were much more open about this the other thing that was happening is the women's rights women were becoming more and more powerful they were Uh, It wasn't just a token cabinet secretary or a token this or a token that. They were, little by little, beginning to acquire positions of power. And again, this idea, even though it wasn't fully realized in 1998, that a powerful man could be involved in this, it was news.
2: If the same thing were to happen now, David said the media would react differently.
3: I think there'd be more emphasis on whether or not Lewinsky was sexually harassed, whether powerful men use their position uh of authority to take advantage of her there was not much about that back in 1997 98 99 so i think there would be that perspective that you did just didn't have that
2: if the same thing were to happen now david said the media would react differently the Me Too movement, which was started by multiple actresses in response to the allegations about sexual harassment from Harvey Weinstein, have changed the way that society and journalists cover sex scandals in the workplace.
3: I think there would have been a lot more sympathy for today. Mm. Yeah. Um, now, there would have, been, would have been a school of thought that, well, <laughs> why didn't she just say no? But um, yeah, I think the standard would have been much different today. I mean, look at how the documentary treated uh, the women you know, much more sympathetic to the women than they were ever treated or regarded in the late 90s.
2: Another aspect that would change the way the story would play out in the media today is the impact of social media.
3: It probably would have, um, how can I put this, been even more sensationalized uh, more quickly. Now, as you know, social media was just beginning to become a factor. And if you saw that documentary, you see how Drudge was able to basically put it all out there.
2: In an article that David wrote, he described the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal as relatable to Americans. Unlike financial scandals, which presidents are more commonly faced with, this was something that the average American could understand.
3: You always look for things that, well, you look for things that matter, frankly, to people. Um, And not just matter on a sensational level, I mean, but things that matter to the operation of their government, to their investment of tax dollars. And this was highly relatable and understandable. Um, it's not unlike what we're going through now. Um, and forgive me, but follow my logic here. Um, look, climate change is very important. Voting rights is extremely important. But what people are reading about right now is the economy, inflation, gasoline prices, meat prices. That's relatable. OK, that gets a lot of eyeballs right now. It doesn't mean we shouldn't write about this other stuff. But it's relatable. And frankly, you always look for relatable stories. And this was relatable because it was very, not only was it very human, but it was, it raised all kinds of questions about the president of the United States and his behavior and how much this distract him from being president.
2: An important part of the coverage, David said, was localizing it to Connecticut.
3: Um, and again, We tried to see it through the eyes of what Connecticut readers wanted to know from us uniquely. They could get the grand jury leaks or whatever it was through the New York Times, through national wire services. What could we give them? And that's where, frankly, uh, the two senators came into play.
2: Finally, we asked David if he believed Monica Lewinsky was treated fairly by the media. He was unable to give us an answer.
3: To look back, 20 some years later and say, yes, it was fair. No, it wasn't. You know, you have to put your mind back in 1998, 99. So I, I just can't answer that.
1: Our next guest, Susan Campbell, took no issue with answering whether the reporting was fair to Lewinsky. Campbell, a features and columnist reporter, has written multiple times since 1998 about the bullying and public humiliation she said Lewinsky has had to endure. We first asked Susan how she began writing about the affair.
4: I insinuated myself into it. No one actually assigned me. I was um, writing features and columns for the Hartford Courant at the time, and it was the biggest story.
1: The first article Campbell wrote was in August of 1998 titled Shopping Around the Monica Gossip. She wrote about a conversation she overheard in the grocery store where women both criticized and defended Lewinsky's role in the affair. Campbell argues that Lewinsky couldn't be held fully responsible. Psychologically, that's not equal. And my
4: friend who was younger, is younger than me, was saying, no, it's, it's, she's every bit as responsible. And I don't think we agree even now that no, she isn't. I'm sorry, Not not in a situation like that. This type of relationship wasn't unfamiliar to Campbell. You couldn't have talked to any of the women I knew in newsrooms and not had a story where my boss hit on me or, you know, whether you said yes or no, there was so much sexual harassment that we didn't even identify um, because we were happy to be there. We were Title IX babies and, oh my God, I'm in this newsroom and that's awesome. And I didn't know that was
1: going to happen. And, you know, we all had to do what we could to survive. Next, we asked what it was like to watch the rest of the world report on Monica Lewinsky as she emerged as a now nationally known figure. Campbell said it was like watching a hurricane set down and pick her up.
4: With newsrooms it's like, you know, here's a pen, everyone jump. Jump all. You know, we're all trying to say something new and interesting and refreshing and educational or something about this pen, you know, which We can't. It's a pen. Like it would run in the Times and then we would try to localize it. That was another thing that was really stupid. Like this event happened in D.C. How can we localize the story? How can we find women who've slept with their bosses? You know, I mean, it's in Connecticut.
1: It was just insane. When we asked how she thought Lewinsky's treatment would have been different if the scandal happened today, Campbell was adamant that her life would have been far worse.
4: I think Monica Lewinsky would have been hounded into a much darker corner than she was hounded into. She could at least in the 90s go to her condo or her mother's home and shut the door and don't turn on the television. She wouldn't have popping up on her phone continual reminders that people did not like her based on their judgment of what they thought they know knew rather about an event that did not concern them.
1: It was this firestorm media response that Campbell said was wrong, and she hopes the media has learned something from.
4: You don't dive in with your knife and your fork ready to carve somebody up just because you can. And this, it still happens. It absolutely happens. And it happens to everyone. And again, with social media, you have this fire hose of nonsense being shot out. Um, but it, it was a unique experience for a lot of different reasons.
1: I think we can all agree that we hope this unique lesson has been learned far and wide and no young girl ever has to go through what Monica Lewinsky faced in 1998.
2: And if they do, we handle it with compassion
4: instead of venom.
1: You know, I think we all owe Monica Lewinsky an apology.
5: Hello and welcome to our presentation on bootlegging in America during the late 1920s and early 1930s. I'm Amanda Kenny.
0: And I'm Derek McLeod. Thank you all for joining us. About 100 years ago, the 18th Amendment was ratified, followed by the Volstead Act, both of which prevented the production, sale, and transport of alcohol in the U.S. Given where we are today with alcohol consumption, it's clear that Prohibition was a failure. The fight to control these crimes was a losing battle, and many police were corrupt, along with members of the Prohibition Unit assigned by the IRS to oversee enforcement of the new laws. They were all easily bribed. An article in the Chicago Tribune ousted politicians and members of the Chicago court at the christening for the son of bootlegger Diamond Joe Esposito.
5: Bootlegging business was booming during this time, with gang members like Dino Banyan, John Torrio, and Al Capone rising to the top of the ranks. News media was growing as well. Radio gained popularity in the 20s. Newspapers had more staff reporters and photographers. And newsreels gained popularity in movie theaters.
6: Twice in a few weeks, the government has struck. This time, a brewery on South State Street said to belong to Al Capone. It's a scene of joy or sorrow, depending on how you feel about it. Either way.
5: Catherine Hermes, professor of history at Central Connecticut State, spoke about some of the trends taking place during this era, from Al Capone's rise to prominence to the coverage of local papers during the fallout of the St. Valentine's Day massacre. Chicago was definitely a hub
7: and it was a competitive hub. And during the Saint Valentine's Day massacre, Capone took care of a lot of his competition. But I think Capone pretty much took up the Midwest and a, a lot of the prairie, and that was his home base.
0: Once the Volstead Act was passed in 1919, the trend of bootlegging became a crime in the US. And during this time period, the coverage of bootlegging in newspapers was generally strict, reporting on the smugglers as if they were criminals, because they were. As time progressed deeper into prohibition, the act of bootlegging was covered like an open secret, including articles with details of the shipment from Nassau, Bahamas into the United States, according to one Wall Street Journal entry from 1923.
5: This era was also when tabloid journalism became extensively popular amongst readers, an extension of yellow journalism spearheaded by the popularity of William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal. The use of photography and sketches was wildly popular during this time, as they added to some of the gruesomeness of the stories that were covered. Stories that included violence and gang activity related to bootlegging were covered with a lot of attention. Papers were openly referencing the connection between prohibition and the violence that seemed to come with it.
7: There are some newspapers that see themselves as taking the high ground, right, and not sensationalizing. That doesn't mean they don't do it but <laughs> from time to time. But they they sort of pride themselves on objectivity. Um, and then there are other, uh, they're muckraking uh, newspapers, especially at this time, right? They're, they're newspapers that are sort of tabloid-like. And then there are newspapers like The Defender that serve a particular community, and they see themselves really as vanguards. Um, Robert Abbott, who published The Defender, which was the African-American newspaper, really saw himself as wanting to elevate the race. And so he was very conscious of not sensationalizing things like gang activity. Um, So I think when you had small newspapers like that, the, the editor or the publisher really had a lot of control over how the paper dealt with it. If you look at the Chicago Tribune, you don't see a lot of coverage of Capone. Um, the Herald and maybe the Daily News covered Capone more, but uh, like the Chicago Defender covered almost nothing. And the Tribune, I think, considered itself sort of above all that is <laughs> um, my feeling. Of course, they cover the trials, you know, when they're um, and that sort of thing, but they, they don't get into the nitty gritty of it.
0: Infamous mobsters Al Capone and Bugs Moran were well known around the city, often arrested but always returning back to the streets relatively quickly thanks to having law enforcement agents on their payroll. A 1927 New York Times piece claimed an estimate in the range of $219 million was acclimated per year in the police department, all raised off the back of crooked officials who were accused of raising money from bootlegging. If the officials were getting a slice of the pie, too, it would only make sense. And we may even be able to infer that this behavior could have, in some capacity, enabled or led to the St. Valentine's Day massacre.
5: Bootlegging, along with speakeasies and prostitution, became entrenched in Chicago's gang scene during this era, leading to many deadly nights. One event that was well-documented across several national newspapers was the murder of Dean O'Banion on November tenth, 1924. This event would later be known as the start of a five-year war between the North Irish Gang and the South Italian Gang, which culminated in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in 1929.
0: The shooting left seven members of the Bugs Gang dead, with an incident making headline news in many of Chicago's top newspapers as well as around the country. An excerpt from the February 15, 1929 edition of the Daily Boston Globe reads out, Chicago gangsters posing as policemen invaded the North Side stronghold of the George Bugs Moran gang today, lined up seven helpless unarmed victims with their faces to a white brick wall and mowed them down with automatic pistols and machine guns.
5: The massacre was covered extensively by local papers, the New York Times and the Daily Boston Globe. The sweeping coverage was not so much about the death toll because gang violence throughout the city was responsible for many more lives lost on a daily basis. It was more about the way in which the gang members were lined up and killed. Ironically enough, the rise in bootlegging wasn't foreign to Boston or New York either, as they combated and busted high numbers of bootleggers during the Prohibition era. Its coverage of events compounded the reach of bootlegging and how it shaped the gang wars that only amped up following the shooting.
0: The New York Times coverage of the massacre detailed that a number of mobsters associated with Capone were dressed as police officers. This fueled the fire of the longstanding rumors that there was a connection between the ruthless Chicago street gangs and the police department, something that was suggested two years earlier in that New York Times piece.
5: As the days carried on and the newspaper coverage began to focus on the gang violence that had become so prevalent in the Windy City, as well as around the country. The emphasis on bootlegging slowly faded into the background, with prohibition being lifted in most states in 1933, thanks to the ratification of the 21st Amendment repealing the 18th Amendment. Coverage of bootlegging during this time period was prominent. However, newspapers at the time were hesitant to sensationalize the crimes committed by various gangs across the country. I find it interesting that it described the members' That were lined up as seven helpless, unarmed victims.
0: Yeah, I bet they were.
5: That's funny to me.
8: (laughs) Thank you for listening. Hello, my name is Ryan Davis.
6: And this is Peter Leandre. Today we will be discussing how journalists covered Apollo 11 and what kind of obstacles they faced during the process.
8: We also had the opportunity to speak with Space News senior writer Jeff Faust. Our podcast starts shortly stay tuned
6: we will be examining three newspapers that covered apollo 11. this includes the chicago tribune orlando sentinel and the fort lauderdale news ryan davis has more on that
8: the chicago tribune during this time are using a header called apollo dashes to the moon and this is used to entice the reader this newspaper also used images during this time period to capture apollo 11 blasting off the launching pad at cape kennedy they also have images of all the astronauts on the front cover of this newspaper. This newspaper, such as the Orlando Sentinel, features an inverted pyramid. The Tribune uses a lead that says President Nixon today proclaimed Monday a national... day of participation so that all Americans can watch the moon landing of the Apollo 11 astronauts. This sounds like a lead that would be used in the newsroom today.
6: The Orlando Sentinel newspaper, unlike the Chicago Tribune, published an article about the Apollo 11 event on July 16th, 1969, the day of the Apollo Eleven launch. The reason the article was published on the day of the event, unlike the Tribune, is because they had a closer proximity to the event. The header of this newspaper reads, Moon, Here We Come, which serves as a way to pique the reader's interest. There is an image of three pioneers of this mission on the front of the cover that features Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Edwin Aldrin. Newspaper also uses the inverted pyramid and a lead. This addresses the astronauts confidence of a successful mission. The lead reads, the men responsible for getting Apollo 11 on the way to the moon are confident of success.
8: The third newspaper we examined is the Fort Lauderdale News which later was renamed the South Florida Sun Sentinel. This newspaper shows an image of Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. This article's header is titled, A Giant Leap man romps on the moon. This is supposed to get the reader's attention and inform the reader that the astronaut took his first steps on the moon. In this article, it also features a lead which reads, they took their first steps onto the moon cautiously like, a, like prudent boys testing the ice of winter on a country pond. This lead is a bit unusual because it's long and kind of quirky. This shows the transformation of journalism reporting.
6: This leads to our next guest, Jeff Faust, senior writer for Space News. Could you give us some more information about your position at Space News?
9: Sure. Uh, My name's Jeff Faust. I'm a senior staff writer at Space News. Um, Space News is a publication that covers the business and politics of space. I've been at Space News for a little over seven years now. I cover a lot of what's going on at NASA um, and a lot of the private spaceflight activities companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic and the
8: like. Thank you, Jeff. And one question I have for you is what kind of obstacles did journalists go through covering Apollo 11?
9: One of the challenges was certainly sort of getting up to speed and becoming knowledgeable about the topics and you know, developing sources within companies and within government, um, you know, and just being able to get, a, get uh, your arms around uh, a new and rapidly evolving area.
8: What did journalists do to resolve these obstacles?
9: yeah i mean a lot of the same journalism skills that you develop in general regardless of what field you cover also apply to space and that is you know developing sources getting contacts within within nasa within these companies to be able to you know talk to them and understand what's going on um you know doing the background research um understanding um you know, the, the technologies, understanding a lot of the policy um, and budget issues that revolve around these topics,
6: that's all, that's all important. Okay, and I have a question for you, Jeff. Who taught journalists the terminology of space so that journalists could communicate effectively to the public about Apollo 11?
9: Yeah, I mean, you know, in a lot of cases it was the journalists' responsibility themselves. To, to get up to speed because again, this is a, a new topic. There were no space journalism courses, um, in, in schools to take, um, or anything like that. So it was really sort of learning, learning the, the background information about the beat was something that, that journalists were often self-taught. And I think, you know, a lot of them, you know, were very interested. This was a, a very dynamic field. It was very exciting. And so I think a lot of them were, you know, were very motivated, um, to do that sort of self-education.
8: That must have been difficult for journalists to get up to speed. And how has the space beat transformed since Apollo 11?
9: You know, in some respects, you know, it's evolved, but there's so much going on right now that you still have to do a lot to to keep up. You know, and also, at the same time, journalism itself is changing. Um, You know, back in the 1960s, it was newspapers and radio networks and, and. know, the three television networks, you know, and now we have a much more fractured media landscape right now with, you know, all sorts of, of different networks and publications, and, you know, and, and online and print and, and video and so on. Um, and, and so that, you know, there in some respects, it's, you know, there, there's a lot more opportunities out there, um, even if it's the media landscape itself is, is more challenging from a sort of financial business
8: perspective. Thank you, Jeff, for taking time out of your day to talk to us and answer some of our questions.
6: And thank you all for listening. I'm Peter Leandre.
8: And I'm Ryan Davis. Stay safe and have a great break.
0: That's all for today, everyone. Make sure to tune in to the next episode of In Context by following our SoundCloud. Until then, I am Sam Pappas, signing
3: off.